Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. And the Advertising Show being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. You can visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show, a big radio midgets production. <laughs> Something like, you know, I, I love that name. And uh, it's kind of like Worldwide Pants. What a great name for the uh, Letterman production staff. Except for, except for we don't have jackets. No, yeah, that's fine. We'll get some. We have uh, Bridgeway Taddy Hall, uh, Chief Strategy Officer for the Advertising Research Foundation called ARF. Ooh. ARF. It's, it's, uh, the uh, the uh, website is actually arfsite.org. So, and no, this is not a dog show, okay? It's the Advertising Research uh, Foundation, and uh, Taddy is with us out of New York this weekend. Glad to have him on the Advertising Show. We'll talk to him this hour and uh, next hour as well. Also have... Uh, for your listening pleasure, boys and girls, Joe Jaffe, a different perspective. We're going to be talking about Super Bowl XL, and that's just in a few minutes. Also, Patrick Meyer, next hour, uh, the third screen. What do you think he's talking about there? Third screen. That would be uh, mobile phones. There you go. Bing, bing, bing. You win. Face-to-face, Jeffrey Gittimer does that. And uh, let's see, Andy Borowitz. Andy just cannot let the Dick Cheney thing go, okay? Hmm. So uh, we'll we'll let him talk about it a little bit more. Uh, Bruce Abbott, our Wacky World of Marketing feature in uh, hour number two is going to be all about the $3,000 martini, Brad. So hmm. it's going to be I a good one. You and, you and I better split that. I think so. And I hope they take credit cards as well. So uh, Taddy Hall is going to join us here uh, in just a few moments. And how are you doing? So well, out of out of uh, honor of Taddy, I see we both have our pints. Uh, I've got the darker version. You have the lighter version. Uh, I think next Very next hour nice. we'll go black and tan, maybe just to keep it all mixed up. But I think a Smitix is in order here in a little while, <laughs> so we'll get one of those. And if you know what a Smitix is, you win a hat. I don't know where we'll get that hat, but you win a hat. Hey, oh, Ray, we have you know pens. We can give those away. That's fine. <laughs> you know, New York Times had their credibility issues with some journalistic issues in the last uh, year or two. And, of course, our more recent uh, author, Mr. Fry, has his issues. Well, huh. uh, if Fry, you're still out of... with lie. Fry, yes. Yeah. Uh, I got to tell you, uh, Radio Shack CEO resigns amidst, uh, amidst the investigation about this guy. Did you hear about this, Ray? No. Apparently, he uh, his resume... At the CEO level, believe it or not, his resume was a a bit, uh, uh, let's just say it had information on there with regard to his education that could not be verified. Uh In other words, in other words, his degrees that he was mentioning when somebody followed up on it. And, of course, the guy's been the CEO for a while now. Uh, I guess I did hear about this. Yeah. Somebody follows up on it and they find it's maybe not it's it's not two degrees. Maybe it's two semesters that he went to this particular school. But I got to tell you, what's uh, what are the kids growing up that hear about this kind of thing? You know, what what are they going to think when they get older? That it's really just all a a matter of who can uh, who can pull the fast one the, I th- the best i think that they no i'd say i think they'd say to this guy you're an idiot and i'm going to come get your job well i so hope there. so have a because nice it's day. it's not a good message to be sending our youth right now that you know we adults are you know trying to 
lie our way into becoming a bestseller or a journalist or, in this case, a CEO. I was thinking about uh, growing up and, and, and the misconceptions children have, and I remember vividly, Ray, uh, when a, t- a teacher, you, were, you and I are close to the same age, uh, teachers used to say when we were in grade school, you read silently as I read aloud. I used to think when they would say that, <laughs> why would I want to read silently when I can just listen to you read aloud? That's and it just right. never never made sense to me. And one, one other quick thing, uh, I would raise my hand and ask my ask teacher, how you, how do you spell, you know, whatever? Uh, not the word whatever. She but would tell you to word. look it up in the dictionary. Right, and I would say, well, if, uh, how okay, can I look it up when I don't know how to spell it? Yeah, right, I never exactly. could figure that out. Consequently, Brad went through school not knowing a lot of the words, but well, uh, we don't even want to get in. We don't even want to get into saying your prayers at the uh, in the evening, you know, right before you go to bed. And if I die before I wake, no wonder I didn't get any sleep. <laughs> it's like, oh my, my God, what's going to yeah. happen to me? Yeah, I gotta, you know, I gotta work this uh, guy up there in the sky to make sure I wake up next day. You know, you know that's and actually then, not a bad idea, but that's okay. That's fine. and you hear about old elderly people. Uh, what happened to Grandma? She died in her sleep. Oh, that's that thing I keep praying about. Worse than that, most people die in the hospital. So that means that it's not a good idea to go to the hospital. Let's, that's uh, another one. Let's yeah. save some. Let's save some time for Joe Jeffy on the advertising show. If you dare to risk seeing the world from a new point of view, join us now for a different perspective, featuring author and new marketing consultant Joseph Jaffe. Super Bowl XL is now a thing of the past. And one might think XL stands for 40, but it actually stands for extra large. I think the real question is, is the investment in the Super Bowl worth it anymore? In the past 10 years, ratings have essentially declined by 9%, and yet the price, or the rate, has increased by 81%, to a whopping 2.5, or I should say perhaps a whopper rating, 2.5 or $2.6 million a pop. So I'll ask the question again, is that investment worth it? Well, it definitely is worth it if it's done correctly. But the problem is that it is so hard to be able to break through the clutter, to be memorable, and ultimately to be discussed around the water cooler the next day. It's almost a game of Russian roulette if you think about it. Are you going to be one of the top three or even bottom three commercials? If you're not going to be talked about at all, that money might as well have been flushed down the toilet. We certainly look at different proxies of success. We look at visits to websites. We look at jumps in those visits to those websites. We look at things like buzz as well. But still it comes down to the fact this is one of the few, if only, opportunities to reach a mass audience, 90 million consumers and countless other millions worldwide and after the fact. This has been A Different Perspective. Featuring Joseph Jaffe, president of new marketing consulting practice Jaffe LLC and author of Life After the 30-Second Spot. It's the advertising show. Ray Shillings and uh, Brad Forsyth uh, just about to join in conversation out of New York City this weekend with uh, Taddy Hall, who is the chief strategy officer for the Advertising Research Foundation. And uh, we've got Taddy on the line. We'll join him here in just a few moments, as a matter of fact, with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Hey, uh, Brad, here's one. Uh, this is, uh, well, it's been out about a week or so. Uh, the Sachi is urging kids to get out and play, okay? Talking about using their thumbs for 
other things than uh, cursors and uh, shift and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, the uh, new ads for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, from Sachi and Sachi encourages children to get active in a campaign called Verb. It's what you do. What a great mm-hmm. idea. It's a 90-second music video uh, style spot. Uh, let's see. Chris Palmer of Gorgeous Enterprises directed it. It's showing children outdoors playing. Gee, what a concept with a sun-like orb that is tossed around. <laughs> and uh, print ads which urge, give your thumbs a rest, contrast the um, celerity video game with uh, play with uh, outdoor physical activity. It says, nothing replaces the exhilaration of physical activity. Well, we can certainly attest to that, can't we? Oh, yeah. And in, in the meantime, all of the... Uh, all of the moms, well, not all the moms and dads, many moms and dads are blaming advertising for kids' inability to uh, uh, keep trim and fit and all that kind of stuff. That certainly uh, does come into play, though, doesn't it? If you get the kids out there and get them moving around a little bit. Taddy Hall is with us in just a few moments here on The Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Go to our website, theadvertisingshow.com. It's global, and it's a great destination. Hope you're there right now, as a matter of fact. Back in just a minute. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. See the USA in your Chevrolet. America is asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. It's The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. In our uh, interview portion of the show, we've got uh, Taddy Hall for both hours, hour one and two. It's uh, Chief Strategy Officer for the Advertising Research Foundation. Also called ARF, A-R-F. He's recognized authority in the fields of innovation and strategy and has held senior management positions in the United States and Latin American companies in both uh, private equity investment firms, Taddy, did you write this, and optional uh, operational companies. Taddy's, Taddy's additional experience includes managing the successful growth of the database marketer WebMiner, directing International operations for Latin America's largest independent search engine, Gumi Network, launching the highly successful Internet Business Services Division for the nation's largest specialty auto parts distributor, Keystone Automotive. And and to top it all off, Brad, he also lived in Chile, okay? Hmm. Guy's been around. And, you know, to think of it, Taddy's only 17 years old. No, That's amazing. Hey, Taddy, welcome to the advertising show. Great to have you here. I, I don't know who wrote all that stuff, but Your probably mother. half those companies are now bankrupt. And <laughs> a little in South America, I'm not sure who I was running. Well, South America is... It sound very nice. South America is bankrupt, actually, so that's fine. <laughs> You've had the effect there. He's a good old, he's a good old East Coast guy, you know what I mean? Yeah, and and what was the restaurant in in uh, Santi- uh, Santiago that uh, that Taddy worked for, right? <laughs> Albon Pond in Chile. Yeah, Albon Pond. Yeah, I'll have the, uh... it's like it was a bunch of Boston guys who wanted to do a French. It's huge on the East Coast, but you're right. Yeah. How did it go in Chile? You know, it went darn well in Chile. It was the first. Um, it's interesting. It was. It, it probably happened the way a lot of. Uh, Brands get launched, or or uh, advertising campaigns get kicked off, and that it was a total fluke and freak accident. And yet, after the fact, you sort of have to come up with a good story that makes it sound like it was uh, all a all planned. Plan. And the, yeah. good, the good news is now, Brad Aubonpon is 
now bankrupt. But that's okay. It's <laughs> now neither, bankrupt. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. So well, uh, and I'm sure that uh, you had. You know, it was amazing that they were able to close out your deal with them with you know just paying you in croissants. I thought that was a very <laughs> clever idea on Closed their part. Those tabs. Yeah, let's jump into uh, a little bit of the background. Uh, what I call a softball warm-up question for you, Taddy. Share with our audience, uh, Chief Strategy Officer for, for the Advertising Research Foundation. What would your role be? What would be a, a, a typical week for you? We're still trying to figure out what my job is. We think it's a very <laughs> nice and lofty title, but there's actually no responsibilities that go with a job. But uh, That's uh, in, good. <laughs> it's a great job. Uh, what do I really do? In truth, what my what my job is 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 about has an internal and an external dimension, and the, the internal is not terribly exciting about marshalling our forces here. What's really exciting, though, is to on the external side is to work with primarily the leading advertisers in in the country and. Uh, express their agenda to our internal research team so that we can do the research in the advertising world that enables advertisers to leverage the power of research to optimize the effectiveness of their advertising campaigns. So we, we, we're built on a philosophy that behind every great advertising campaign is, is a fabulous piece of research, and that's paraphrasing a bit from, from David Ogilvy. Um, and we uh, we help advertisers leverage that power to uh, get greater ROI and performance out of their advertising. You know, let me throw you a curveball early on the show here. Scott Bedberry was a guest of ours and a, a very uh, well-traveled, not only author, but uh, re- more recently, but uh, a gentleman that worked uh, during the heyday with Nike and um, mm-hmm. and prior and after that, uh, what he calls a two-year coffee break as a, an executive with Starbucks. And when I asked him, when Ray and I were chatting with him a few years ago, when I asked him uh, if if he did research at Nike, and he said uh, rarely did they do any research regarding Mark, uh, the advertising, and that's what I was asking about, the uh, cutting-edge ads that you saw back in the uh, 80s and 90s. And I, I posed the question to Scott, uh, how many, it, had you tested the ads that were really breakthrough ads back in those days, how many of those ads would have ever seen the light of day had you had you tested them uh, prior to launch? And he said probably less than half. Mm-hmm. So you being a research guy, what's your reaction to that? I think uh, if, if half of them would have passed uh, your your average uh, screen, that would that's optimistic. I think that most advertising testing mechanisms are totally flawed, and they tend to ensure mediocrity at best, and not much more than that. And uh, it really derives from a fundamental misunderstanding about how advertising works. And uh, that broken model gets uh, translated into broken testing models, which do a pretty decent job of ensuring that really brilliant stuff often never sees the light of day. And, and when, when you test uh, ads prior to launch, it's all about uh, back in the old days when that was done. Certainly, I say when it was done. I hope none or few are doing that today. But back in the 90s when it seemed to be very popular to pre-test uh, copy and headlines and TV campaigns, etc., uh, it, it would seem to me that uh, you were asking a consumer – to do more than they really are qualified to do to, to judge whether a spot is, is, you know, effective or not. Don't you think, Taddy? A- anytime you are asking a, an individual 
consciously express a, an emotion which is inherently pre-conscious or subconscious, you're going to get at best a very garbled and uh, vaguely accurate response, and, and, and much more likely you won't even get that. Because, because 90 plus percent of uh, mental activity is unconscious, and um, when we force people to make elements of that activity conscious, it goes through a translation that usually strips it of meaning. Yeah, I, uh, we've seen that over and over. And, of course, there are many stories about how uh, uh, some of the more successful advertising campaigns back during the high, high heyday of testing uh, ignored the results of, of, the, of the group and went against uh, uh, what what was suggested from a research standpoint, and were some of the more successful campaigns. Just as a reminder to our audience, you you, met, you wrote an outstanding, you co-authored, I should say, an outstanding uh, piece for the Harvard Business Review back in December, entitled "Marketing Malpractice: The Cause and the Cure." And we're going to get into talking a lot about that uh, both this hour and next hour. But before we do that, uh, on the subject of interactive advertising, you've been quoted as saying the online guys got burned by trying to be revolutionary for the last few years they've been trying to behave themselves so now that they're being invited to the party uh what are they doing with that and we're going to save that question this is called a tease well, we're going to save that unless question unless can answer it in less than 10 seconds but i don't think so <laughs> we're going to save that question next time. Oh, well yeah. i'll restate it we'll restate the question <laughs> or just get your pen out and write it down during the break right. it's fine <laughs> i told you time flies when you're having fun here. that's a fact it's Teddy hall chief strategy officer of the advertising research foundation out of uh, new york uh, ARF site.org is the website. Go there, check it out. It's pretty cool, as a matter of fact. We have uh, our website, theadvertisingshow.com, and that is a site that is made possible by our good friends at shipple.com. That's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. Ed Shipple's a great guy, makes a lot of things happening, including a podcast and RSS feeds for the advertising show. It's cool stuff. Go check it out. It's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com, M-O-U-S-E.com. Back in just a minute with more of the advertising show. Quick Takes on Sales and Customer Relations with Jeffrey Gittimer, nationally syndicated columnist in the network of city business journals and other great publications worldwide. If you're offended by common sense commentary, don't you dare listen. Now, here's Jeffrey. Meeting someone on the phone, cold calling them, even from a referral, is not the best way to start any relationship. Oh, it can work. I'm just saying it's not the best way. When you meet someone face-to-face, -face, you can see them and hear them at the same time. This is 100 times more insightful. Networking is the best way to create that initial face-to-face -face meeting. It doesn't have to be a, a business after hours type of thing. It can be any kind of three-way lunch, trade association meeting, even an annual convention. The reason face-to-face -face is so powerful is that your prospect can get to like you faster. They can get to know you and like you faster. The more they like you, the more they will buy from you. People don't like to be sold, but they love to buy. Wherever you network, understand that whomever you're networking with will build rapport that leads to appointments, that leads to sales. Lots of sales. 
quick takes on sales and customer relations from The Advertising Show, the only radio show in America featuring Jeffrey Gittimer as a regular weekly guest. To learn more about his books, tapes, CDs, and speaking engagements, log on to Gittimer.com, G-I-T-O-M-E-R.com. And tune in next week when we'll hear Jeffrey say, This is Jeffrey Gittimer reminding you that if no one responds to your ad, it may be because your ad sucks. Make informed decisions about your company's advertising strategy. This is The Advertising Show. Good morning. Are you not my daisies? Right, Mother Nature. They're Chiffon's new daisy servers. Taste. The classic spot of The Advertising Show. It's time for a little uh, snack at this point in time to keep our energy up. It's Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Our special guest this weekend is Taddy Hall. Chief Strategy Officer of the Advertising Research Foundation. Uh, you can get to the site going arfsite.org, but you can also get there by going thearfsite.org. Anything else I'm not sure of, Teddy? And welcome back to the Advertising Show. It's great to be back. Yeah, let me uh, tee up again the question as we closed out the last segment. Uh, as I mentioned also, just as a reminder for those that are familiar with your article, Marketing Malpractice, co-authored uh, Harvard Business Review in the December 05 issue, we will be jumping into what I think is some outstanding content that you guys wrote about there. But before we do that, uh, along the topic of uh, interactive advertising, you've been quoted as saying at the iMedia Summit in 2005 that the online guys uh, certainly, and we all remember, got burned by trying to be revolutionary back in uh, 2000. 2001, uh, and yet more recently, they've been coming around. They've been invited to the party, as you like to say. So I'm curious, Teddy, now that they're being invited to the party, are they making good good use of their presence at the table? It's a great question, and uh, I think you know what I can do is, in some ways, is state with historic, with all the confidence that comes with uh, 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 retrospective analysis, um, that in the early days. The call and the battle cry that hey, the world is going to change. All your old models are outdated. You got to trash that. The internet changes everything. Uh, either you're on this bus, or you're going to get hit by this bus. That that hype heavy um, arrogance uh, was clearly misplaced. And uh, uh, and those who uh, spent heavily, some people probably got out okay. And uh, but but we know that it's incredibly dangerous to be a revolutionary like that, and they ran into a lot of entrenched interests that, that obviously said, you know, not so fast. Um, I think what happened once uh, a lot of the online guys kind of licked the, got better, licked their wounds and came back was they realized, you know, we can't just topple the existing order. We've got to we've got to speak the uh, speak the language because the reality is is lots of people still are going to consume media in traditional ways. Lots of people are going to find their content in in traditional ways. Uh, advertisers are going to make make products and market those products using traditional media. And what we've got to do is integrate with that rather than come in speaking a totally different language. Now. What I think the online guys have done a wonderful job of doing is showing how Internet works with other other media from an advertising standpoint, as well as showing some of the unique features of the Internet. But I tell you, 
they've got a new challenge now, right? Because their first challenge was to get a seat at the table. And I think nobody would argue with that. Now, the online publishers would say they deserve more of a seat. They'd say, hey, look, media consumption is probably 15 16% on, uh, online, and yet we only get 3 or 4% of the overall advertising budget. We deserve more. We deserve a couple extra seats at this table. Uh, it's, it's less about the seats at the table, I think, at this point, than it is uh, the online guys have to once again take a leadership role in pushing the industry forward. And to do that, they're going to have to change their language from one that is essentially using the broken rhetoric and broken metrics and broken models of a TV-centric past which basically functions on the sale of GRPs, audience impressions, and in the online business that takes the form of uh, uh, page views or clicks or impressions. Uh, that type of exposure metric, which is really a tonnage-based system, really doesn't link at all well with the outcomes the advertisers care about, selling products. And I think that for the online guys to push the industry, their industry and the broader advertising industry, to the next level of relevance and importance, they're going to have to change the measures and the currencies by which their their product, their medium is sold from well, impressions stay, to outcomes. Staying with the, uh, the, the idea there of measurement, and of course the online guys have uh, measurement going for them, or at least they tout the measurability of response and connectivity to the consumer. I'm, I'm curious, Taddy, do you believe that agencies today, by the way of, I guess, their clients, are too focused on ROI and therefore a little shy of delivering the so-called big ideas, taking risk? You know, agencies tend to uh, respond to the guidance and the direction that they're given by the client. Uh, the days of agencies really being you know, we ought first of all we ought to, we ought to separate, or I tend to separate the creative agencies from the media agencies, uh, right. and and even within that demarcation, uh, lumping is dangerous. But by and large, and there's some great creative shops out there. Many of the creative uh, agencies are not innovating. They've 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 detached themselves from the research capabilities that are going to be the way that they generate actionable insights. And they're simply in, in a production business of producing TV spots, which is, an, which is a dead-end game. Now, let's go back to your, um, your, your question. Uh, and I think the reality is, is there are some, some of the media agencies are doing a great job uh, at putting together comprehensive pro um, uh, communications programs that do speak to the type of business outcomes, growth and sales, uh, brand building that advertisers care about. Hey, Tanny, uh, Tanny we're going to have to take a break here in uh, just a minute on the Advertising Show. Back with uh, Ray Shellens and Brad Forsyth. Make informed decisions about your company's advertising strategy. This is the Advertising Show. Hello, amigo. 
On the advertising show, Ray Schillen's Brad Forsyth, and they, they do tell you how to eat a banana on that commercial, so that's hmm. kind of applying some of Taddy's philosophy there. Taddy has a lot to say, and we'll have uh, an opportunity to continue our conversation with Taddy next hour uh, here at the advertising show. All right, here's this guy's name is Michael K. Simmons, Jr. He, mm-hmm. uh, he has two jobs. Oh, two jobs that occupy every day of the week, straining his otherwise loving relationship with television, okay? Uh, new technology is here to help, Mr. Simmons, though. He has learned how to download basketball games from websites like ESPN 360 and snippets of the Grammy Award show from Yahoo. He records shows like Lost and 24 to his laptop. And he said, I can pretty much catch anything I want, he said. Nearly 70% of his television viewing is not live. In fact, it's not even done with the television. Downloadable television keeps the uh, Fort Washington residents uh, tuned into popular culture and uh, water cooler talk at work. So, hmm. with that said, there are about a gazillion other Michael K. Simmons Jr. out there who want to hear your message. So, when you go to practice the art of advertising, you need to think about that. Isn't that interesting, though? 70% of his stuff is not live. That is interesting, and you know that that really is the uh, that is where the market's going. And with the iPod capability, a video capability, and with uh, all the networks and other uh, video uh, program content providers that are going to be getting into uh, uh, offering their uh, programs through iPod-like devices, I think mm-hmm. you're going to see much more of that. Uh, uh, certainly uh, around the corner. And keeping with that, Ray, uh, fans of NBC's uh, Saturday Night Live uh, got into a little bit of a video sharing uh, recently with a particular site called YouTube. Uh, five million uh, viewers uh, downloaded or, or viewed uh, a particular clip of a Saturday Night Live episode uh, recently, and apparently NBC Universal didn't really care for it, and they asked uh, the program to be withdrawn from YouTube, along with 500 other clips featuring NBC programming. I don't know if people understand this or not, but she really can't just steal programs and put them on websites and allow uh, allow that kind of thing to be shared. It's called copyrighted uh, protected material, and you can't do that. But yet, you know, they're having the same problem uh, today as the uh, music industry had, you know, five, six years ago. And sure. They're going to they're work it out. And meanwhile, uh, NBC offers through their own site $1.99 from uh, uh, iTunes, I should say, uh, to offer sh- uh, video sharing. But uh, and Google Video is another source for that. But you got to pay, folks. You can't get that for free. No. Well, we, we didn't we find that out with Napster. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they worked uh, it out, you know. As you say, they worked it out, and the music yeah. industry, I think, is the beneficiary of that now. And you mentioned iPods and how many people do download. Now, I like the price point of dollar ninety nine. A lot of the local TV uh, affiliates are concerned that the uh, that that it's going to um, uh, displace some of their viewers if you're if you have ability to download these programs. My argument would be I don't think you have those viewers anyway. Frankly, it's extending the program; it's not limiting the program. That's exactly right. It yeah. says here the, uh, the the Arbitron and the folks at Nielsen Media Research have yet to collect data about the kind of uh, Mr. Simmons viewing and the alternative and online television viewership. But there is some evidence of a shift since uh, launching in October, Apple Computers iTunes. This is since October, has sold more than 12 million downloadable videos. 12 hmm. million downloadable videos. Cell phone television producer Moby TV 
has uh, said it has, has more than 500,000 subscribers uh, through various carriers, and it, it goes on and on and on. The shift away from traditional TV came by accident for John Grimes, a physics professor in Townsend University. Our VCR kicked the bucket, and we never replaced it. So he's got uh, uh, file-sharing software and stuff, so now he downloads episodes of Lost and Sci-Fi Channel's Battlestar Galactica and uh, all of those. And he even signed up, that says here, for a $50-a-year online service from the Major League Baseball website to get streaming video coverage of all the White Sox or the Red Sox uh, games. So that's kind of cool. Hmm. Good stuff there. Yeah, and, you know, I know we only have about a minute left. I wanted to mention real quickly that uh, apparently in an interview, Ray, in Newsweek, Martha Stewart, one more time, is insisting that Donald Trump is partly at fault for her failed NBC reality show. She said Donald just couldn't give up being on TV, telling Newsweek that her edition of The Apprentice was originally supposed to begin with her firing Trump and thus having just one edition of the show on air. And apparently uh, Stewart said that uh, Donald just wasn't willing to give up his spot in front of the camera. Trump says Stewart's uh, just complaining and that there was no truth to that. So what I would say is, kids, let's stop right. fighting. It's sibling rivalry and it's two big egos and, and uh, they're both right, okay? Okay. On the advertising show, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth, and we've got uh, the advertising showcase on the way next segment here. We hope you stay with us. Simplifying the complex world of advertising. To reach Ray and Brad with your questions, log on to theadvertisingshow.com. This is the advertising show. What do you mean you can't return the car, sir? Was it stolen? Uh, no. No, sir. You had an accident, right? Well, I kind of hit. No, no. I did it on purpose. What did you do, sir? Well, you remember when I came in to rent the car? No, there's a spot, Brad, that would get a, a an advertising showcase yes, feature if it were a current spot. It's Chuck Bloor, a past guest right. on the advertising show. And uh, it's for Camaro, uh, kind of a great spot. It goes back to the 70s. It's Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Every uh, week we look at the upside and the downside of advertising. We've got some good news for you this week. And now it's time for the Advertising Show's Advertising Showcase, an outstanding example of on-target advertising. For the good stuff, here's Ray and Brad. So what are we looking at this week? What is that well, there? Well, I gave a little uh, tease last week about Samsung and the uh, TV spot during the Olympics. You, you'd asked me, uh, caught me flat-footed, but I was able to retrieve it. Uh, what I liked about the Olympics uh, TV spots, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. Last week's was not a good example. I think we talked about the Chevy Tahoe, as I recall. Uh, but this week, we're going to go to the positive side with Samsung and the spot uh, entitled Salute, a 60-second TV from Leo Burnett out of Chicago. Uh, if you have not seen it, the spot opens with a shot of a wintry landscape. A camera v- reveals a person in a white snowsuit uh, running across a mountaintop carrying a torch. The runner makes his way through a sundry of places, mountains, uh, passing over a bridge, etc., as you see this Olympic torchbearer running towards a town, which you know now is Torino. Uh, Next, we begin to see dancers in a stadium, obviously Olympic Stadium with fireworks in the background, etc. And the spot cuts to a runner making his way into the stadium. And now we begin to see the spot taking place where the audience members in the stadium are beginning to uh, pull their cell phones out of their pockets and jackets and coats, and they're talking to people uh, about presumably the experience they're 
having there within the stadium, and they start holding the phone out in front of them as if they're wanting the uh, the person on the other end to hear the applause, or I guess presumably they could be taking a picture. But uh, this continues to where you see more and more people taking their cell phones out and talking to people and holding them out in front as the audience builds and, and applause, and you have a crescendo there, and the gentleman's making his way up to lighting the torch, and the spot ends with the Olympic logo and the uh, copy world partner wireless communication equipment and, of course, the Samsung uh, uh, logo. Now, in my opinion, Ray, this outstanding, uh, just outstanding example of how to tie in the, with the Olympics is uh, not only relevant and meaningful, I think, to the uh, to the consumer and in integrating the particular uh, emotional connection, I guess, with the lighting of the Olympic torch and the connection of the Samsung Samsung brand, where you actually are showcasing the product, Ray, sure. uh, by showing its brand in use, which. Uh, you know, when you think about a Samsung mobile phone, you, you, you show consumers in this case uh, sharing the emotional experience that they're having at the Olympics through the use of their mobile phones, and, and they're doing it with people on, on the other end. Uh, that, that you know, you see that in real real life. You see it at other sporting events and other uh, uh, special events if you've ever attended it. But here they've taken uh, the example of, I think, something that, all the viewers can connect with uh, someone, uh, in effect, dialing in a friend or a relative and say, listen to what I'm experiencing. And they figured out a, a, a sponsorship advertiser, figured out a way to strategically be meaningful with their brand and, and even an event as big as the Olympics and do it in a dramatic and, in my opinion, a very memorable way. So congratulations to, and you and I know him, Mark Tustle, mm-hmm. the Deputy Chief Creative Officer, the guy that was at the American Ad Federation that you and I attended last year. Sure. Uh, he's the, uh, as I said, Deputy Creative uh, Officer at uh, Leo Burnett. And the executive creative director, Judy John, which really means the person that did all the work. He, you know, Mark just gets the credit. <laughs> and of course, more importantly, not only Leo Burnett in general, but the fine folks at Samsung that allowed that kind of spot to be created. It's an outstanding spot. Have you seen it, Ray? Oh, I certainly have. And it's also a great phone, too. So that, uh, that's. Uh, oh, really? That's nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot better than the Motorola phone I have. That's fine. Trying to think. Let me look at mine. Yeah, mine's Motorola, too. No, yours Motorola. Yours works. Yeah. Mine doesn't. Have a nice day. <laughs> that's the way it goes. No, that's a good idea. I'd love to, also love to showcase the good stuff out there. Give yeah. people an opportunity to see and uh, get our opinion, at least, on what, what is good, what is bad, and what, uh, what you might try for advertising uh, for your own business, actually. And you know what's interesting, Ray? I think it was, uh, let me think here, Monday evening they, they uh, aired the uh, uh, ice skating couples and, you know, all that stuff. Right. Uh, and finally, the Olympics uh, had a decent ratings night. Uh, it, not surprising. I mean, a lot I of guess. the other stuff I'd seen throughout the week uh, prior is all that oddball, strange stuff that uh, wasn't really garnering much uh, much in the way of ratings. But yeah. uh, Monday, you know, sometimes you got to give up that remote. Monday, my wife uh, decided she was going to watch the ice skating, the couples, uh, you know, whatever, freestyle, whatever they call that, dancing. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll choose. When they introduce golf to the Olympics, that'll be fine. I'll watch that. <laughs> yeah. Not the Winter Olympics either, huh? although that might be interesting, though. Hey, uh, this past week, Brad, uh, McDonald's was sued over fries ingredients. This begs me to wonder what Michael Gerber is going to do. He bases his whole e-myth on the McDonald's 
you know, plan. Right. right. Uh, it's uh, Deborah Ma- Moffat. <laughs> Actually, her name is M M O F F A T T. Moffat. Moffat. Moffat of Lombard, <laughs> Illinois, seeks unspecified damages in a suit filed in Chicago. Her attorney said his client has celiac disease, which causes gastrointestinal symptoms set off by eating, eating gluten, a protein found in wheat. Uh, Jack Daly, McDonald's senior VP, said the statement of the company has not reviewed the case and is testing its fries for gluten, although uh, through a food allergy research program at the University of Nebraska. So, huh. ladies, uh, the ladies suing McDonald's. Uh, let's see, what is it? Before its acknowledgement Monday, the company had quietly added contains wheat and milk ingredients to the French fries really? listing on its website. Oh hmm. my! So not only does it make your kids fat, it gives you. Uh, Gastrointestinal symptoms set off by eating eating gluten. Well, I think they should learn to promote the whole wheat French fry. Apparently, they have a little wheat in there, and they need to you know latch onto that and turn it into a positive. Possibly (laughs) grind them up into a fuel. That'd be a good thing too. Yeah. Uh, We have uh, let's see. We have a Taddy coming back next hour. Taddy Hall, and uh, we've got a lot more too as well as we uh, continue with our. Number two of the Advertising Show in just a few moments. Advertising Show being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. You can visit online at adage.com. With Ray Shillings and Brad Forsythe, this is a Big Radio Midgets production. Welcome to the Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. And it's hour number two of the Advertising Show being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. You can visit online at adage.com, the Advertising Show. A big radio midgets production. We've got Taddy Hall back with us this hour for a couple of segments. Taddy is Chief Strategy Officer of the Advertising Research Foundation. Just a wealth of information and a lot of good stuff to come there. That's um, The website is thearfsite.org, thearfsite.org. Come on and check it out. Taddy spent some time in Chile, not in a prison mm-hmm. or anything like that. He was just there. <laughs> Working hard. And uh, who else do we have? This hour, it is um, Patrick Meyer here in just a few minutes, along with uh, Andy Borowitz later on this hour. And uh, that's that. So a lot of good stuff going on here. Walmart. We talked uh, last week. We talked a lot about Walmart uh, with yeah. our guest last week. And uh, Walmart has for years drilled home everyday low prices with the help from that little smiley face character slashing prices. Target's ads, meanwhile... Uh, used hip music, color, and style to promote an image of affordable style. Called it cheap chic, uh, and realizing be <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly realizing it has to stand for more than low prices to entice shoppers to buy more than low margin groceries. Walmart has been overhauling its ad message as well as adding some new merchandise. Uh, Destiny's Child uh, paid a visit for the holidays in a Walmart mm-hmm. ad, which was really great. So they're trying; they're doing a good job. Well, you know, uh, film producer and director Robert Greenwald will be our guest next week. Uh, Walmart, the high cost of low price. He's the uh, producer and director of that film. And we're going to be able to talk a lot about uh, Robert's uh, 
foray into the world of Walmart, shall we say. Huh? You're talking about Bob Pasikoff? Is that who you're saying or no? No, Robert Greenwald, our Robert guest Greenwald. next week. Because okay. yeah. the reason yeah. the reason I say that, uh, Bob <clears throat> Pasikoff, who's been a past guest on the show, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, what they're saying is next month in March, uh, the annual consumer study done by Brand Keys, Bob's mm-hmm. organization, uh, of the study of top brands will show Walmart at number two, right behind Target. And this is for the second consecutive year. Love that consistency. Target means style at accessible pricing, says Bob. Uh, Walmart hasn't reached that point yet, but it's trying. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That'd be funny. Uh, fun to get his take on that as well. Yeah, it would be. And, you know, uh, somebody sent me an email forward today, uh, a gentleman by the name of Pete Lerma, who is a uh, one of the so-called experts on a website called ClickZ.com, apparently uh, wrote an article and mentioned the advertising show as a podcast along with uh, uh, several other podcasts, New York Times, our friend Stuart Elliott, uh, his advertising spotlight podcast that he does. And, and apparently uh, Pete Lerma, is recommending uh, our site along with several others. Uh, and I wanted to just uh, mention, thank you, Pete, uh, for mentioning the advertising show. He says he's oh, a regular listener and downloads all of these or, or handles it through his, uh, uh, through his uh, iPod. And he's recommending uh, several other shows. I guess you can go to uh, clickz.com and look up what Pete has to say about uh, several different uh, advertising and marketing-related Podcasts. We'll you know talk. what he says. What we'll he says about us. What? He says it's pretty good. No, he's, pretty he's, good. Is that what he's yeah, saying? he's nice. He's nice about it. He's he's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah that's what that's I was right. thinking. Pete's a pretty nice guy. You yeah, know, he's, so not everybody likes Pete. But he's some a pretty good like Arthur. Him. He's a pretty good author. Pretty good. Yeah, it's very good. Not as good as James Fry. He's or Scott good. or Scott Donatin. Yeah, he's he's, he's very good actually. Or, got or to, Stuart Elliott. <laughs> a lot of them out there. Patrick yeah. Meyer is talking about the third screen. Let's learn about that right now. Welcome to Understanding the Future Now. It's the Marketing Insider featuring Patrick Meyer. Today I'm going to talk to you about what I call the third screen. It's a little bit of fast forward on where technology will be in fusion with marketing. 75 million cell phones are out there now. People are bailing on their home phones. 3G technology is coming quick. It's already there with some of the carriers, and it's delivering video over cell phones. So my question to you is, do you have the third screen built into your marketing plan? First screen is TV. Yes, it's true. The second screen is a computer screen, and many of you are still struggling over that. But the third screen needs to be there right with the first and the second one. Many of you are out there thinking, well, we do our network TV. We do our radio, our print. We do our in-store marketing, POS. What do I need the cell phone for? Why would I bring this third screen? Well, I'm going to show you how and why you need to do that. The why is that millions of people are using it every day. It's their lifestyle communicator. It will be their lifestyle TV. It will be their iPod for music. It will be their everything. One day they will be buying soft drinks and other stuff, just walking up with their cell phone, and a signal's emitted, and they've made a purchase. That's why you want to be on their number one device in their world. The how is all about technology. What technology is near in that you can embrace over the next 12 to 18 months? 
but also keeping an eye on the future. So cell phones yield mobile episodes, SMS texting, promotions that are immediate, surveys, surprise and delight of new things that come your way, ringtones, images on wallpapers and screensavers, all on your cell phone. And there's more coming as 3G evolves. Now, focus on the following things. Your next year's marketing plan and advertising plan how can you bring the cell phone in as a third screen? You need to be working on them over the next six months for the following couple of years. I'm Patrick Meyer, and remember, the marketing revolution is now. You've been listening to The Marketing Insider, heard every week here on The Advertising Show. Join us next week for more insight into the future of marketing. Always good stuff there from Patrick Meyer here with Ray Shillings and uh, Brad Forsyth. Uh, just about to join back in conversation with our uh, good friend uh, Taddy Hall, Chief Strategy Officer out of New York at the Advertising Research Foundation. And uh, you'll want to stick around for that. Uh, not a bad uh, not a bad place to be for the next, uh, well, the balance of this hour, okay? We have we talked about the web before. We talked about that nice note that we got from the gentleman. Uh, where was he from again, Brad? Uh, ClickZ, and his name's Pete Lerma. Okay. ClickZ.com. Okay. It's a pretty nice site. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, but anyway, so is the advertising show, and you'll want to you want to check it out. You know, obviously, through terrestrial radio, you can reach uh, as many people as you can as far as the signal goes. AM, it bounces off the ionosphere. FM is line of sight. But through uh, through the Internet, we, of course, have a global audience, and we have a lot of people listening uh, in various parts of the world, Brad, don't we? Yes, we do. And, you know, we like to welcome them and acknowledge them. And But more importantly, as, uh, as you and I have spoken off air as well as on the air, there's one thing to have your show pushed out uh, over radio stations. It's another thing to say these people have showed up at our website, have downloaded an MP3, an RSS feed, have actually consumed because they chose to consume as opposed to uh, being pushed out and, and having it fall upon the speakers of their AM uh, or FM radio. So I, I don't know. It's more rewarding for Ray and I to know that you're seeking us out through our online edition. And, uh, you know, we're honored to, to have a worldwide audience and honored to have you as a listener. And it's all made possible by our good friends at, see a quick little scoot of the commercial, all made possible by our friends at <laughs> Shipple.com. That's Ed Shipple and his team uh, here in our home market of Houston, Texas, USA. And uh, Shipple.com, S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. He also has a really cool thing called Tendency, and you spell that with an I instead of a Y in it. What it does, it's, well, it's a web marketing tool. It's really cool, so check it out, Shipple.com. Thank you very much, Ed. We'll be uh, back with Teddy in just a few moments on the advertising show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth and much more. Make your advertising dollars work smarter. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Last night, Billy didn't skate once with me, but this should get us together. $40. Great. Now, how about close-up? Well, that's toothpaste. Maybe I'll get pom-poms for my roller skates. <laughs> pom pom, yeah. Advertising show, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth. And uh, if you were with us last hour, and we certainly hope you were, uh, Taddy Hall is not a man of few words. But those words are very worthwhile 
to listen to. So we welcome uh, Taddy Hall, Chief Strategy Officer of the Advertising Research Foundation out of New York. It's uh, thearfsite.org. And, uh, Taddy, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. I'll be very succinct. No, don't. Do what <laughs> no, you do. Then we only have three more questions, please. All right. No, not really. Let, you know, as, right. as, yeah, as promised, uh, we want to jump into a wonderfully written article in the Houston, uh, Harvard Business Review, December 05 issue, uh, entitled Marketing Malpractice, the Cause and the Cure. Both uh, I give a plug to your co-authors there, Clayton Christensen, as well as Scott Cook, along with Taddy Hall, our guest today. And your article pretty much suggests that marketing executives focus way too much on narrowing demographic segments and trivial product extensions, and that they really should try to dig a little bit on what jobs consumers need to get done, and the jobs will help point the way to uh, purposeful products and more, uh, more, I guess, genuine innovation. You, your article hits upon four critical components of the marketing function, and I'd like to chat with you about each of those four, and we can start with whichever one you care to, Taddy. How about number one? Number one, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you, yeah. You Brand development, up. sure, why not? You know, um, I did a lot of work for over a decade with Clay Christensen, uh, at Harvard, who's really the father of the whole theory of disruptive innovation, which proposes um, a very accurate way to think about innovation, um, juxtapos- juxtaposing disruptive innovation versus sustaining innovation. And I'm fairly new to the advertising business. When I came here, I was shocked at uh, the amount of waste, as well as the poverty of the tool sets to get at that waste. And one of the places we first started to look at look was um, the spending on brands and brand development. And um, I think there was a bit of a, and I, I, I say this with some hesitation, but I think there's a bit of a, a conspiracy, if you will, amongst the advertising agencies to convince brand managers that building a brand really just meant uh, executing some really clever advertising. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and so Clay and I tried to, to dig into the, really the data of thousands and thousands of brand launches and, and say, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there making dumb decisions or, or decisions that don't result in, in, in good outcomes. It's not because they're dumb. Um, what is it? And as we started to explore the experience of largely failed brand launches, what became clear is, is that the way that consumers use brands is really very simple, um, and yet it gets kind of complicated unnecessarily so, but that really great brands uh, serve a purpose, and, and it's a very helpful uh, model to use as a brand manager to simply think, well, what's the job spec that my brand is filling? If, if, if it's not filling a particular need, um, it's very unlikely that a, cu- that a customer is going to hire it to perform anything. Use, uh, share with our audience the Theodore Levitt uh, example of what you're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah and, and Ted Levitt was a very well-known uh, professor at Harvard Business School for, for, for many, many years, and one of his aphorisms that kind of became famous was, you know, Nobody wants a, a, a quarter-inch uh, drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. Hmm. 
And yet uh, the vast majority of marketers, while they would nod their head and say, of course, of course, when they go out to uh, define their products, uh, it's often done on the basis of product attributes, such as you know drill size and bits and uh, the handle shape and the colors. And when they go out to describe their customers, it's usually in terms of demographic terms. Are they male or female or young or old or urban or rural? And yet none of those types of differences typically matter at all. And those represent two very common uh, ways to segment either products or customers uh, that are highly unlikely to result in success. And the type of segmentation that we found that does result in success is a jobs-based segmentation. Again, not based on demographics of the target customer nor on attributes of the product, but based on the particular job that a customer uh, has a need to have accomplished or performed for them. Well, let's say you're a brand manager and you're hearing you speak this about designing products that uh, are promoting a brand based on the uh, product itself and what it job it does for the end user. And let's say that this is the first time you've heard of this because you've been doing your branding from the typical uh, you know, find out what your brand DNA is and promote the, you know, brand value, et cetera, et cetera. How do you get turned around from the traditional way of viewing a brand to this, what I consider uh, a much more, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, really a, a, it's intuitive, isn't it? Yes, it really is. Right. It really is intuitive. How do you, how do you go from the old way to the new way? Where's your starting point? You know, I, I think you can start with a product, but where I like to start is with a group of customers. And, and I think that observational research, uh, watching customers uh, uh, encounter experiences in their daily life, uh, and looking at the, uh, as, as A.G. Lafley, the CEO of, of P&G, said, uh, uh, discovering the nuisances that they face day to day is a wonderful way to identify brand and product opportunities. And first, sure. let me just say that to, to separate brand from product is, is a dangerous bifurcation. Uh, because once you do that, it sort of frees you up uh, when you're just talking about a brand and there's no product really to talk about. It kind of liberates you from responsibility or accountability for actually doing something. It somehow implies that, well, if you're just building a brand, you know, you can do that through advertising, where as soon as you're uh, constrained to talking about a product, well, suddenly you actually have to do something of value. So um, I, I hate, I, I'm always nervous when people talk about brands in, in, in the absence of, of some, some discussion of a product and, or a service and a particular benefit. But hmm, look at your customers and watch what they're doing. I, I don't know if we have time for a couple examples, but I could certainly share some. We've got about a, a minute left here, so share, share one with us. You know, Few companies invest as much in market research as a Procter & Gamble or, or a Coca-Cola. Um, uh, you want to look at one of the greatest innovations coming out of Coca-Cola in the last 30 years from a sales impact. It, wasn't, it certainly wasn't New Coke where a lot of research was done, right? Right, Saying, right. You know, that everyone said tastes better. The, 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 the breakthrough research that Coke did was simply watching customers. And, and what they discovered was the marvelous uh, realization that if people have cold sodas in the house, they're much more likely to drink them. 
Hmm. But few of us at home practice inventory management. And so we might have a few warm ones in the cupboard, but you drink one out of the fridge and then you don't put one back in. Coca-Cola developed the fridge pack. It's brilliant. It makes it easy to keep cans of soda cold. Therefore, you drink more. Therefore, you buy more. That's just from watching people uh, with it, with, behave with a product in their home. Church is white. Sure. It's, it's a great concept, and certainly I think uh, no matter what your brand is, you can take away uh, something there, which is really get down in the trenches and observe your consumer, and your consumer will tell you what you need to be uh, doing with your with your brand from a promotion standpoint. Right. So it's a great, great concept. Saying he's new to advertising is, uh, is not necessarily true, though. It seems that he knows a lot about advertising, or at least what it should be as well. How about the $3,000 martini? I'll take one, please. Would you like one, too, Brad? It would be Olive, please, yes. Olive, okay, very good. Uh, that's coming up next on the Advertising Show. It's Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Good news is we've got Tandy back for one more segment here on the show, so that would be uh, right after all of this stuff at the bottom of the hour, so stay with us. And now it's time for the Wacky World of Marketing. Wacky World of Marketing. Here's your host, Bruce Abbott. Our wacky update heads to Mashantucket, Connecticut, where AP asks, Would you pay three grand for a martini? Connecticut's Foxwoods Resort Casino is offering a new signature cocktail. It's called the Sapphire Martini, and it's made with blue curacao, Bombay Sapphire Gin, a splash of dry vermouth, and is coated with blue sugar on the rim. But it's not the booze that makes it so expensive. Each sapphire martini comes with a pair of custom-made blue sapphire and diamond earrings. The casino isn't alone in offering ultra-pricey drinks. The Algonquin Hotel's Blue Bar in New York offers a 10,000 diamond martini. They've sold two since 2004. And that, my friends, is the wacky world of marketing. This program was written and produced by Bruce Abbott, executive producer of The Advertising Show. Join us next time when we uncover the strange, the bizarre, and, unfortunately, the true wacky world of marketing. Make informed decisions about your company's advertising strategy. This is The Advertising Show. It's a real thing In the back of your mind What you're hoping to find It's a real thing Product we were just talking about a few minutes ago in the advertising show in a classic spot from Coca-Cola. And it's uh, Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Our special guest this weekend is Taddy Hall, who is Chief Strategy Officer of the Advertising Research Foundation, the ARF site.org. Taddy, welcome back to the show. Great to have you here. It's been fun. Well, it's not over yet. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about brand equity, Taddy. Uh, well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about brand equity, Taddy. Uh, you explain how some of the top brands today, Crest, Starbucks, Kleenex, eBay, Kodak, for example, all started out as purpose brands and created brand equity along the way. You know, it's, I, I like the question. I didn't even plant it, but and, and I think it's an important one because there's so many efforts today in our uh, uh, fast-paced uh, society, instant everything, that that it, sometimes whether it's the agency, the market, there's a belief, at least in practice, the theory and use is that you can circumvent really delivering value to customers and build a great brand just by executing 
clever advertising. That's simply not true. And so if you look at many of those great brands that you just mentioned, almost all of them started as what we call a purpose brand, a brand that solves a particular problem, a job to be done for a customer. And even if that job is a one of providing some psychological or emotional gratification, there's still a job to be done. Certainly that's what you know, Starbucks was doing. It had nothing to do with getting a cup of coffee, but everything to do with a third place that offered a, a type of urban oasis to its customers. But um, uh, there is a lot to be said about focusing your brand on on particular purposes that customers encounter in their lives. Um, and let's talk about a great brand. Um, the one that one that we talked about in the article is Church and Dwight's fabulous Arm and Hammer brand, mm-hmm. and how that was built. You know, it's it's amazing. But today, the uh, that little orange box uh, baking soda. It's, it's less than 10% of their overall sales. And back in the second half of the 19th century, uh, sodium bicarbonate was bought by folks out of bins in uh, home, home stores and used for a variety of products. And uh, Church and Dwight came along, built the first plant in the U.S., and packaged this product with a symbol of purity and uh, marketed as, as the standard for people's uh, baking and cleaning and deodorizing needs. And what they found by watching their customers, and this didn't happen until the, 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 end, the latter part of the 20th century, is that people were buying this one box and one brand, but they were using it for about eight or ten very different jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. People were sprinkling it in their swimming pool. They were sprinkling it on their carpets. They were sprinkling it in the cat litter. They were using it in their refrigerators. They were uh, using it in the cookies they baked. And so there was this one product. And what they realized was that each of these different jobs uh, needed a slightly different solution. And, and, and what they were able to do was to leverage the wonderful endorsement quality created through years of powerful positive experience associated with Arm & Hammer as the standard in purity and cleanliness and natural cleaning uh, to develop purpose brands, their their toothpaste, their laundry detergent, uh, and other products that solve very different jobs, leveraging the powerful brand that had been built over years of experience by by the initial product. Sure, you know it. it and once again, it, it just goes to show you you learn uh, you learn from your consumers. Talk a little bit about how brand equity, Teddy can be both a positive and a negative, uh, depending on, you know, your particular brand connection with your consumer. Well, I think that, that brand equity is a positive, uh, and, and it's something that you build through positive experience and repeated use, uh, not through advertising. Uh, advertising can remind folks that you're out there. They can uh, strengthen an image or an association that you have. Uh, to the extent that brand equity can have any kind of a negative, um, it, it only, to me, would be a negative in the sense that having a strong brand does force you to focus. And brands that try to be everything uh, lose that particular equity. To the extent that there's a negative associated with brand equity, it's simply that you can't be everything. 
Well, yeah, I was going to say the one that comes, a couple come to mind for me. Kodak was so good at what they did when the digital camera craze came along. Kodak was so entrenched to the old world, it was hard to shake that connection. They've done a good job of coming around lately, but it's cost the company uh, dearly in in both employees and, and total revenue, don't you think? You know, I, I, I really I, I like that example because it's an example that I think many, many marketers can learn from. Look at, look at you know who the number one seller of digital cameras is in this country? Today, no, it, it, today it could be Kodak. It is, is Kodak. And, and, and I, this is opinion, but I'll tell you why, which is the vast bulk of the market of the digital camera uh, manufacturers are competing tooth and nail on product performance attributes. Mm-hmm. Pixel size, resolution, features of the camera. But you know what Kodak went out and did? They went out and they figured out, they found a job. They found a job that mm-hmm. customers were trying to get done, but there had not been a brand or a product really designed for that job. And that was just to take easily decent quality pictures and share them instantly with friends on that note Taddy, we are unfortunately out of time it's been a pleasure having you here thanks so much for joining us i hope i get invited back it's been a treat for me you will well back in just a moment with more on the advertising show you're listening to the advertising show with ray shillings and brad forsyth Ajax cleans all bathroom surfaces up to 50% faster. Talking about Ajax, talking about uh, Arm & Hammer stuff. That was a great uh, story <laughs> from uh, from Taddy, and it's so true. Uh, they do deserve applause for marketing a product right, huh? Mm-hmm. It's uh, Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth on the advertising show. A couple more segments, and we'll tell you about our next uh, week's guest here in just a few moments. Also st- have Andy Borowitz still on the way. Uh, and uh, we will uh, we will play that for you as well. You know, Ray, when uh, when Taddy was talking about Arm and Hammer, as you mentioned, uh, I grew up seeing my mother uh, brush her teeth on occasion with uh, the Arm, Arm and uh, yes, with Arm and Hammer baking soda, and I used to think that's really gross, Mom. Uh, and then as I got older, and they introduced Arm and Hammer toothpaste. Sure. I was in the advertising business, and still am, of course, uh, and I thought, line extension, well, my mother wasn't so stupid after all, and maybe these uh, mm-hmm. these folks have been uh, figuring out what their cons- customers are doing, so this many years later, uh, you know, I find it very interesting that, you know, here we're talking about Arm and Hammer and them observing their customers and learning how to uh, extend their products in a way that not the company thinks would be smart, but their consumers sure. are actually doing in real life. So oh, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah Arm and Hammer, they, they've certainly done it right for so many years. Here's something uh, that uh, I came across. This is from the Seattle Post Intelligencer. Say that three times. It says, reaching out in beer country. And I thought of that, uh, thought of you when I thought of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, to guys like Dick Cantwell, spreading the gospel of good beer shouldn't be much harder than sliding a glass of fresh, hop-laden India pale ale across the counter. Uh-huh. Doesn't that sound good? Across the counter and letting the word spread with each satisfied gulp. What a great opening statement there. Uh, 
by Kurt <laughs> Woodward of the Associated Press. And what they're saying, uh, rising from the mom and pop to regional power, it's never that simple. So two decades after they helped uh, launch the modern brew pub craze, Washington's small beer makers are trying to drive up the consumer appeal of their top-shelf products. Profile hmm. is good. Nationally, certainly, uh, we're one of the most prolific, at least in terms of numbers, between brewers, breweries we have. Uh, and uh, it's Seattle's Elysian. Is that how you say that? It, Elysian, Elysian Brewing Company? I guess it is. Is that with an E? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like Alyssa, the cruise ship. Right, right. Um, anyway, the, the one lady said the center, uh, senator... Uh, says, I drink milk personally, but she's a sponsor of the Beer Commission Bill and a dairy farmer. Uh, but as long as they use Washington hops and Washington barley, I approve. <laughs> That's funny. So the, the, you know, it starts at home. Well, and uh, Boston, uh, what's that uh, Boston lager, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, man. Uh, Samuel, Sam Adams. Oh, yes, yes. Samuel yes. Adams. Back in the heyday of when the uh, uh, microbreweries were really just, you know, beginning to take off, which I guess would be, what, six, seven, eight years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people thought that Samuel Adams was a microbrewer out of uh, Boston, and certainly that's where they originated, but they were hardly a microbrewer by the time that you were able, or I were able to, uh, was able to get uh, my our hands on a beer, because uh, a microbrewer is just that. It usually resides in one area, and once mm-hmm. you're able to gear up and distribute your product nationwide, are you no longer a microbrewer? I don't think so. And then in addition to that, Samuel Adams was doing uh, what's called contractual manufacturing with other beer manufacturers hmm. uh, in other parts of, of America to be able to make it affordable to just, just distribute their product in other regions of the U.S. So they weren't even necessarily producing the product out of their original brewery, but having other brewer, brewers do that for them. And now that we're not drinking, we can say the word brewer and, and do <laughs> It better than we normally can. And we'll probably have to go to a, a convention this spring. It's the Brewers Association Craft Brewers Conference and Biennial World Beer Cup. <laughs> and it's held in Seattle. At 1,300 industry leaders for hobnobbing, networking, and drinking beer. Why would they say hopnobbing? Hopnobbing. Speaking of hops, you know, yeah. creating beer is a fun thing to do as well. If you have spare time, not many people do. But I had uh, two of my neighbors, one on either side. They had, they made beer, and it was mm-hmm. good beer. Was it? <laughs> it was really great. So I, all I had to do is decide which neighbor to go visit, and uh, depending upon my taste, you know, do I yeah. want do I want a pale or do I want something? Eh, I'll go see him. That's fine. And you could only risk getting a WUI. Exactly. Yeah, and hopefully, if I fell down, it would be in the grass. You, <laughs> you know, you mentioned Target and. Uh, and our fine folks at uh, Walmart's apparently uh, Walmart Italian fashion labels uh, Giorgio Armani and Gucci apparently have been determined as being the world's most coveted brands, according to a survey by market research company A.C. Nielsen. One in three consumers, I thought this was weird, one in three consumers said they would buy Armani or Gucci products if money wasn't an issue. Well, if money wasn't an issue, right? It wouldn't be Armani and Gucci. Right. Right, exactly. How interesting. And I, I feel the same way. Love the bicycle, though. Well, if money doesn't matter, get your paper and pen out. I got a long list for you, right? <laughs> Good. Merry Christmas. Make informed decisions about your company's advertising strategy. This is the Advertising Show. Colgate Toothpaste. 
the tooth toughener. How can that be? Well, it contains advanced MFP fluoride. It's the only toothpaste... The spokesperson of spokespersons, Arthur Godfrey, in a classic spot on the advertising show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Just about to bring Andy Borowitz. And as we said earlier... Andy just can't let the Dick Cheney thing go. It's like, let it go, Andy. It's fine. All of his material <laughs> is 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 about the Dick Cheney thing. I can't know. wait. You can't wait to hear it, or we can't wait. No, for him I'm, to let I'm it go. lock and loaded. Oh, you are. Okay, well, good. Very good. Mm. I'm behind you. Uh, Robert, don't stop quick. <laughs> Robert Greenwald is our special guest next week. He's a film producer and director. And um, uh, is this uh, the film? He's done a film called Walmart, or is this a book? Yeah. No, oh, it's film. It's a film, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll be watching it here on the advertising show. The high we'll cost of low prices. And, you know, if you've Walmart. been to Walmart, uh, I guess there is a, a price to be paid to be able to do that. And there's been a, some negative negative uh, press out there on, on Walmart. And, and uh, we talked to Pam Talbert, uh, Talbot, I should say, the uh, CEO of... Uh, Edelman uh, U.S. I almost gave her a promotion there again uh-huh. last week about that same thing. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that show, it's available through our site at theadvertisingshow.com, and there's my product placement. Okay. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, right now check in with uh, Andy Borowitz and see what's, what's all about Dick Cheney. What is this stuff? Hi. This is Andy Borowitz for The Advertising Show. And now, here's this week's feature from the Borowitz Report. Vice President Dick Cheney said earlier this week that the March 2003 invasion of Iraq was the worst day of my life. And he was still waiting for the Iraqi people to apologize for it. Speaking to Britt Hume of the Fox News Channel, Mr. Cheney said that when the United States invaded Iraq, he expected the troops to be greeted as liberators, and that when that did not happen, it was extremely hurtful to me personally. I would have thought that the Iraqi people would have made some sort of apology to me by now, the vice president said. I'm still waiting for that apology, but I guess you could say that I'm not holding my breath. Mr. Cheney added that he thought the Iraqi civilians who had been accidentally shot in the face owed him a special apology. Accidents will and do happen, Mr. Cheney said, but it's incumbent of the person who had been accidentally shot in the face to apologize for it. Mr. Cheney said he would encourage the president of Iraq to name March 1st as a national day of apology, when all Iraqis would offer gestures of contrition to the vice president. In his concluding remarks, the vice president said that the day it became clear that Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction was the second worst day of my life. Saddam Hussein owes me an apology for not having WMDs, Mr. Cheney said. It still hurts. Elsewhere this past week was a week of redemption for the United States at the Winter Olympics as Bodie Miller won two gold medals for the U.S. drinking team. This is Andy Borowitz, and this has been a special edition of the Borowitz Report from the Advertising Show. To read more reports or to receive daily email alerts, log on to BorowitzReport.com. This is Andy Borowitz saying, keep it fake, baby. Well, that maybe that's the last time we'll hear about Dick Cheney, okay? <laughs> but uh, it's good to note that he also hit on the Olympics as well. Uh, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have, uh, hey, this is interesting uh, from uh, out of Torino or Turin. Uh, Samsung, we talked about that earlier, um, right. can't put its name on its popular flat screen televisions, even in its own VIP lounge. Workers at the Winter Olympic venues were taping over the Dell logos on laptops and press boxes. The Austrians, 
because well, of the sponsor. Exactly. The Austrians yeah. had to cover up the spiders on their spider jackets. The advertising police whoa, are out in force, or were out in force, enforcing the, uh, the rules with a vigor. Uh, under the International Olympic Committee rules, sponsor logos are allowed, but only in certain places. Non-sponsors are out no matter where. Hmm. <laughs> Venues must be keep, kept free of advertising. Even bottles of Coca-Cola, which is one of the game's biggest sponsors, have been ordered stashed out of view of the television cameras. Hmm. They don't want it turning into a Formula One event. Well, hey, Olympic advertising police, wake up. Well, <laughs> come on. Or, or a Ferrari event. Yeah. Boy, that Ferrari's getting a lot of play on the Today Show, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, Ferrari's made there in uh, Torino, if mm-hmm. you don't know that. Uh, not that you and I don't know that, Ray. Uh, you know, you drive the red one, I drive the black one, but, you know, what yeah. the heck. Yeah. That's, yeah. I thought that was rather interesting, though, too, as well. Well, you know, I, I agree with that as it relates to, uh, you know, not wanting to get over the top with the Coke cans and all of that. And, you know, you've know, you got to, I guess, draw the line somewhere. And if uh, Dell or, or some of these other uh, makers can get some free publicity, uh, they, they certainly will take it. And if you're going to have value in what you're selling, that being the sponsor's, uh, then I guess you got to police that, or or it does or it dilutes uh, a bit of what uh, the the paid sponsors are, are getting in value. So I guess you know. I suppose heck? I think it's a little bit uh, a little bit over extreme. the top. Oh yeah, yeah. Come on now. Hey, real quickly, Times Picune or Picayune, whatever you say. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, uh, they've been uh, awarded with a Gold Polk Award for excellence in metropolitan reporting. As you may recall, they were forced uh, out of their offices during Hurricane Katrina, and they continued to publish uh, articles online. I remember that, yeah. They, yeah, they did it both online as well as at other newspapers, uh, uh, meaning moving their offices to other uh, locations, I think Baton Rouge was was one of them, uh, during the aftermath of uh, Katrina. And so well-deserved uh, award for them. And uh, to show you the uh, the, the uh, company they were in, the uh, New York Times as well as the Washington Post led the awards uh, in addition to several others. But uh, wow. New Orleans Times Picayune, or Picayune, whatever you want to call it, I guess we had the... Uh, um, the uh, New Orleans, uh, what was that last week that they held? The Mardi Gras. Yeah. Mardi Gras, exactly. Yeah. yeah, not too many people showed up, but I'm glad they got on their feet and they got it back uh, got it back going again. Hopefully it's a new beginning for it. It looked a little bit odd, too. It didn't look <laughs> yeah, like it. Did. it, it and seriously, it did. It well, didn't it wasn't a like big it. crowd. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, but Galveston, Texas, on the other hand, had one heck of a Mardi Gras did celebration. They? And with really? temperatures, <laughs> as we know, in the uh, 40s uh, here in the Houston market, it's uh, that was kind of amazing. And, of course, we had the All-Star game last weekend, too, as well. Right. Which is big. Basketball, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I uh, hope you can join us. Robert Greenwald, film producer and director. The film is Walmart, the high cost of low price. You'll have to look real hard to see the film on the advertising show. Uh, considering we don't have any video to go with that, that's okay. The Advertising Show is brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. You can visit online at adage.com. Come back and join us again next week. This is a Big Radio Midgets production.